Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 72. Thank you very much for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Dr. Woolman. Hello, Christina. How are you? Fantabulous! Yeah, I know why you're fantabulous. <laughs> of course, there's a hundred reasons, but at the top of the list is our special guest. Yes, of course. <laughs> we yes. get to play again. Yeah, it's always fun. <sighs> Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your host along with Christina today as we travel through the healthcare galaxy, always exploring for ways towards optimal health. And as we said already, Tracy Harrison is with us again. And for those of you who know Tracy, of course, you're already getting ready for an exciting show. For those of you who haven't met her, we suggest you go back and watch every show. Uh, we're getting great comments on the shows. People are really learning a lot. It's very important, uh, the things they're learning. Tracy is a health and wellness counselor, and she focuses on teaching people to eat with purpose. So without further ado, Tracy, how are you? Hi, Glenn. Good morning. I'm very well, thanks. Hi, Christina. Hello, Tracy. It's great to be back. It is so great to have you back. It's like, oh, what juicy topic are we covering today? <laughs> Thank you. Juicy is a good word for it. Christina, uh, before we start uh, asking Tracy to give us her wisdom, can you tell people how they might get in touch with us in, that, in case they have a question or a comment or a suggestion for us? Oh. Or Topic. anything at all, right? <laughs> right? Just about. Well, for those of you who might have a comment or a question, um, just scroll down on your screen and you'll see a comment box there. Type it into the box and be sure to click submit. And we will sure to be to get it over to Tracy for her to answer your question or comment or to Dr. Woolman. So at any time, you can do it at... Just scroll down on the screen and type it into the box. And just in case, if you are listening to this through iTunes, be sure to come to the site and actually click on the same show and you can do the same thing. Thank you, Glenn. Oh, you're welcome, Christina. Thank you. You know, uh, we're learning so much more these days about food and nutrition and health, uh, things like that. Of course, we've known about food forever, you know, an apple a day. Uh, let food be your medicine and medicine be your food. All of these came from many years ago. But we're learning more and more about uh, the nature of what food's about and how it affects us. And we know uh, in many ways it affects us uh, clearly for energy. Uh, that's the main way that we get energy through nutrition. It also affects us with weight control, gain or loss, or maintaining digestion. Uh, and we've talked about on this show many times about sleep and stress and connections between the brain and the gut in, in all many ways, including the immunological processes. So today, uh, in continuing to talk with Tracy, I've challenged her to come up with a strategy or a template um, to help people as they go through the day trying to figure out a meal here or there, be it at home, be it at work, be it traveling, be it somewhere else, so that you don't have to be thinking about calories, you don't have to be thinking about weighing proportions of things, just you'll be thinking about uh, the guidelines and, or the template that comes out of 
what we learned today and how to figure out each meal. And if we have some time, we'll also get into snacks and we'll get into uh, maybe a few extra little things about eating itself. We know that eating has to do with social things and customs and cultures, but we're focusing really on Magical Medical Tour with the nutritional aspects. So Tracy, uh, you ready to go? You ready to meet that challenge? I am. I am. <laughs> okay. Any thoughts before we uh, hit it? I Actually, I was laughing while you were saying that because uh, it might surprise people to know that despite all of the um, encouragement to count calories, even on this day in the medical media, there have been studies uh, done that show that even dietitians are not able to accurately estimate their food intake. Um, we aren't designed to micromanage, uh, and much less do math for every bite that we take into our mouths. So I'm delighted to talk about some general guidelines today. I think for most people, calorie counting can be extremely frustrating and, um, aggravating or even demoralizing, but I think we succeed much better when we have general trends and guidelines to work with rather than trying to get into the minutia because if a dietitian can't add it up, right? The average person has no hope of being kind Kind of accurate with regard to counting as opposed to learning to eat more intuitively. And I think that's where we're going today. I remember many, many years ago when the first diet books were coming out, it was always, it didn't give you, it told you things to eat. It told, I always remember that half of a grapefruit and <laughs> two teaspoons of cottage <laughs> cheese. That was the, that was the diet concept uh, at that time. And I think we've come a long way from there. Indeed, so, we have. Thank goodness. Yes. So let, let's let's get right into it here. So we wait, we we go to sleep at night, and we have that fast that we've spoken about. Where sometimes, if you don't eat for a certain amount of time, you can burn some fat, and that helps you lose a little weight. But we've been fasting for a number of hours uh, since our last meal, and we wake up in the morning. What should we think about as we start to? break that fast, and put things into our uh, sensitive gastrointestinal tract? Well, I think one of the first things I encourage <clears throat> folks to consider is hydrating. Because despite the fact, as we've discussed, that while we've been asleep, we feel like we've been static. In reality, the body has been very busy uh, doing a lot of things, but in particular, detoxifying. And most of us are um, a bit toxic and also a bit dehydrated when we wake up in the morning. So I think starting the day with a nice big glass of water. Um, it can be hot water, hot water with lemon, if you like. That's uh, nice and alkalizing, good for a throat for you actors and actresses. Um, but something that will help you to hydrate very first thing in the morning, I think, is a great place to start. And that probably also uh, helps. I mean, you said a big drink of water. And a lot of people sometimes, you know, we're drinking a lot more water today. People are carrying around jugs with them and uh so we put we put this water in our mouth, and it probably also curbs our appetite a little bit. It starts to fill us up. 
As we discussed before, I think uh, very often uh, the sensation people feel as hunger is actually thirst. And so I, I think that's actually a great weight, weight maintenance tip overall is uh, throughout the day, whenever you feel um, an unexpected sense of hunger, to have a glass of water first. Wait 20 minutes. See if you're still hungry. Most of my clients are shocked at how often a glass of water will allay that feeling, which of course is feedback that thirst was really the issue. So I think it's a good strategy. Okay, so we drink the water. Uh, do we have to wait a certain amount of time, or do we just get right into it? You said twenty minutes, but you were referring to during the day. How about if you know we wake up and we sort of have to go to work, so we have X amount of time. So how long should we wait before breakfast? Before after we drink the water. I, I I do recommend about fifteen or twenty minutes, just to especially if you're guzzling a nice big glass, so that you're you're not dealing with too much water remaining in your stomach, and it will pass fairly quickly. But for most people, this is convenient because they're going to jump in the shower or do other types of hygiene activities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I am a very big advocate of breakfast. And um, as we have discussed in the past, uh, coffee uh, and tea actually are beverages that can bind with nutrients in our food. So if folks are going to enjoy a a hot beverage like that, which I think is fine, uh, I recommend that they have it before uh, their meal um, so that that can pass through their system and they have a better chance of maximally absorbing nutrients from their food when they have it afterward. But uh, I'd like for, I think most people feel at their best when they are having breakfast um, within the first hour and a half or so of rising. Um, It's not an exact science. It doesn't have to be immediately. It doesn't have to be a little later. We're all a little different. Some of us wake up raring to go and some of us wake up and are a little groggy and need a little time to develop an appetite. But um, I do think breakfast is an important meal to obviously break the fast that we have had and to really jumpstart the metabolism. When I grew up, breakfast was the most important meal of the day. (laughs) You can still hear your grandmother saying that, right? (laughs) I can hear everyone I know saying that. Isn't that funny, Glenn? When we were growing up, breakfast wasn't. It was dinner. It was dinner. And and a lot of, I don't know why, but a lot of... uh, 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 maybe Asian families, they'll have a very light breakfast, and the, but their dinner is the main. <laughs> it's sort of, you know, the stir-fried vegetables and the beef and everything, but that was the main meal. <laughs> you can miss breakfast, but not that. dinner. <laughs> I think we're going well, to try and change that today, don't you, Tracy? Uh, I, I do encourage um, playing around with that and experimenting with what makes you feel better because despite cultural customs, I find most people feel better if they change that up a little bit, Christina. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I, um, uh, yes, yes. Oh, no. Now breakfast is one of our main meals now. <laughs> but I think to your point, it, whether it's your main meal of the day or not, I do think it is very important to have breakfast. Um, yes. I am not an advocate of skipping it. I think it's very important to to get the hydration in, to jumpstart the metabolism, get some nutrients going. Uh, most of us do um, intensive work in the morning, whether it's physically intensive or mentally intensive. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the body works best with fueling that um, rather than having to remain in fast mode mm-hmm. from overnight. Mm-hmm. I, I certainly find, Glenn, I can anticipate questions folks might say, well, what if I'm just not hungry for breakfast? I, 
I think part of our challenge is that, especially in American culture, we eat huge dinners. And uh, in fact, I I read a study a few years ago where it was assessing the eating habits of a a couple of um, tens of thousands of Americans. And the average person ate more than half of their day's calories after 5 p.m., and and so if we're having these really huge meals, it will cut the edge off of our um, our hunger at times in the morning. But I find shifting when we eat naturally causes the body to shift when it's hungry because it learns to expect food at different times. And and by shifting when we're eating the bulk of our food, many of my clients find that they lose weight without trying. Um, that they get an energy boost, uh, and they notice improvements in their sleep quality and often in their digestion as well. Now, you bring up a really interesting point uh, among all of your interesting points, but many people that I know that are trying to diet, for example, and that seems to be on the minds of many today, they always feel, oh, if I miss a meal, that's much better because that way I can lose weight. (laughs) I I am not an advocate of skipping meals um, because my experience is that it catches up with people. It's the the old catch-22 of I'm going to be good during the day. I'm going to have this teeny breakfast and this teeny lunch, and then I'm starving and I'm going to crash and burn late at night and eat a half a gallon of ice cream. Um, I, I think that trap befells many people. And so if, if people really aren't hungry for dinner, to be honest, I think if you're going to skip a meal, dinner is by far the most logical meal to skip. Because for most of us, we don't need real-time energy at night. It would be different, I guess, if people are going to have late night sports or if they work a night shift, but most of us are going to relax. We're going to hit the couch after dinner uh, or in the evening hours. So if people do feel uh, the desire to skip a meal or to have a little mini fast, I think there's nothing wrong with that. Um, But I recommend doing it for dinner, not breakfast, not lunch, um, so that we're actively fueling our body in anticipation of when we're going to need the majority of our calories rather than asking our body to run in arrears. Mm. Uh, Very good point. So what does breakfast look like? That's a great question. <laughs> I, I think we have so many different um, cultural, I, I'm sure Christina could share different cultural histories of breakfast. And while I find the the average American is comfortable eating a wide variety of foods for lunch and dinner or even for snacks, we tend to get stuck on a breakfast food and eat it over and over again. Um, and if that's nutrient dense and balanced, I think that's fine. But certainly for a lot of people, it's not. And what we eat for breakfast, by and large, determines what kind of energy we're going to have later in the day. And I think something that many of our of your listeners uh, are undoubtedly um, interested in is how to get rid of those mid-afternoon blues, that 2.45 to 3 p.m. slump that has most people clamoring for a snack, another coffee, some microwave popcorn, the office candy dish. <laughs> and I very often, donuts, <laughs> any of that, absolutely. I often find that simply changing up breakfast to make it more balanced will take care of that afternoon slump. 
And by that, I mean moving away from a predominantly refined carbohydrate meal, which is what most Americans are eating, um, a bagel, a donut, a Danish, a muffin, toast, a bar, cereal. Um, we eat lots of refined carbohydrates for breakfast. And the problem is, is that doesn't have nearly enough fat or protein to fuel most of us uh, into a nice, steady blood sugar control for the rest of the day. So I think it's very important to look at our breakfast and to choose some uh, a meal that has some good doses of protein and fat in it. Uh, now, that, that can certainly be a lot of things. I don't mind sharing my personal favorite breakfast, uh, which Go would be um, a little bit of vegetables. My goodness, we struggle to get vegetables into breakfast, but I will often put a, a bed of um, raw spinach or arugula uh, topped with a couple of eggs and uh, a sprinkle of sunflower seeds, maybe uh, a little um, pumpkin seeds and some fresh slices of avocado. Um, but something that's nice and hearty with some good healthy fat from the avocado and the nuts and seeds, maybe a little olive oil, um, some good protein and also some fat and, and a lot of nutrient density in the eggs, and then some nice raw vegetables, some good alkalizing leafy greens. This is very balanced. And most people would be shocked to know that the breakfast I just described to you has less than um, less than the number of calories in a plain whole bagel that you would get from a deli. That sounds like lunch that you just, uh, you, you just quoted our lunch. <laughs> sure. And, and certainly the meal would be compatible with any, any type of uh, meal, but it's quick and easy to prepare. And I find it's an, sometimes an easy transition for people to make because we associate eggs as being breakfasty. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, just trying to put a, a little bit more nutrient dense food in that. I find that pretty much no one gets good fuel of energy throughout the day by starting the day with just a couple pieces of toast um, or a a bowl of um, cereal or a bagel. Um, These are very popular breakfasts, but when people feel energy slumps, I think the primary place to look is your breakfast. Hmm. Go over, you used the word nutrient dense. Go over that so that people will have an understanding of what you're talking about. Well, this goes back to what we've discussed in terms of whole natural food or what I like to call whole foods rather than broken foods, Uh, things that are as close as possible to the way they were created in Mother Nature, as opposed to something that's been refined. Um, the, The vast, vast, vast majority of products that are made with flour have been highly refined. Uh, wheat is uh, stripped of the protein and the fat and most of the minerals in the milling process. And so what you end up with is not very dense with nutrients at all. It's very dense with calories, that's for sure. But it's not very dense with nutrients. And in most cases, it's had a lot of fiber removed. So it spikes blood sugar very aggressively and tends to lead to more hunger and more of these sort of sine waves of energy highs and lows throughout the day. Wow, this is uh, so fun, Tracy. <laughs> uh, it's like, wow, all these questions, of course. Always when, when we're doing a show with you, I'm bombarded. My brain is going bing, 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 bing. <laughs> um, Tracy, a uh, question did come in. Um, is there a difference, if any, uh, or is there a secret in the idea behind porridge in the morning? 
or the Asian form of porridge, which is like the rice gruel, in contrast to toast or bagel? There is generally, and, and I'm not, um, what you're talking about is a uh, congee or something uh, yeah, like that? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, I think the concept, uh, the initial concept, I should say, uh, original concept of porridge was actually taking a true intact whole grain. So by American standards, something like steel cut oats. Mm-hmm. where rather than being refined, the whole grain has really just been dried or steel cut, literally cut in half, so it cooks a little more quickly, but where a lot of that nutrition is still intact. Uh, for people whose bodies um, uh, metabolize carbohydrates well, uh, and for people who don't by and large have problems with weight or energy, I think a whole grain anchored breakfast um, could be reasonable. Um, but for a lot of people, it is too carbohydrate dense, as I was saying earlier. Mm. But yes, there's a big difference between taking a highly refined grain and also one that's been processed in order to make it absorbable. Um, we absorb the sugars from toast like lightning versus mm. we absorb the sugars from steel cut oats much more slowly. So instead of getting a big spike of blood sugar and energy followed by a trough or a crash, we're more likely to get kind of a steady state flat line mm. that gives us some um, an ongoing source of energy. So there is a difference in the form Um, But I I think it's interesting when people generally choose a breakfast like that, I might say, well, let's make it a little more balanced. Let's put a good sized handful of walnuts on top of the porridge Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe have a little less porridge. So it's a little more balanced. And and the walnuts add a, a big source of healthy fat and then ask people how they feel. Do you feel better? Do you feel more satisfied? Do you have better energy during the day? Mm-hmm. We're we're all different in the optimal amount of carbohydrates for our diet based on our physiology, our lifestyle habits, our exercise routine, our metabolism, our age, our body weight. So there's not an exact prescription of the ratios of things. Uh, I think people really have to experiment and what helps them to feel the best. Mm. Mm, that's a good point. And what about the rice gruel, like the Asian cultures? It's not just in Chinese, but I know the Koreans have it. And, you know, all throughout Asia, they have the rice gruel in the morning. What are your thoughts on that? So share more with me about what's in that besides rice. Um, you know what? The the real traditional form that people would cook at home is just like um, like the white rice that is boiled down. And then you add what the components that you want in it. Usually it's savory. So it's like, could be a little chicken. It could be egg. They might crack an egg in it and serve mm-hmm. it as such with a little scallion, green onions, ginger. Um, what else would they have? Oh, I've had it with green vegetables. Yes, yes. But usually... Mm-hmm. Um, Leafy, you know. Uh, yeah, more so the, you know, the preserved vegetables that they might use mm. in it. And okay. in Japan, a lot of it's uh, the, they add the miso into it mm-hmm. in Japan. Um, so, or the natto. Or the natto, exactly, which is the fermented soybeans. Uh, so it's usually savory. It's usually, um, it's light enough. And I do know for a fact that like the kanji, when it's just the boiled rice, if someone is having a, a really bad stomach, Mm -hmm. or they're not feeling well, that is the only thing parents will make. 
that wow. with a little ginger. That's right. it. <laughs> I was you just going to say, perhaps with broth or some some anti-inflammatory or antibacterial herbs, right, that are are really potent in the GI tract. Um, that makes sense, and and certainly, um, I'm sure many listeners have heard of different remedies for an upset stomach or diarrhea, maybe mm-hmm. infectious diarrhea, that type of thing. These types of gentle, soothing foods that don't have a lot of fiber, that don't require a lot of digestion, can actually be helpful during a heat healing period because mm-hmm. you're trying to allow your body to rest. You don't really want to kind of ramp up your body to go into work mode because what you'd like it to do is to be into healing mode. Mm-hmm. And certainly as we discussed in the prior shows, what works best in those two situations, it can be quite different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like what you're saying about the congee with um, maybe some different types of protein, whether it's chicken or uh, soy or some type of legumes, maybe some vegetables. It sounds the um, like there's a nice opportunity in there to create something quite balanced based on a person's individual taste. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just find most people will do much better if they like that type of sort of uh, porridge type meal to not just have that plain, but to put other things with it that will do a better job of balancing protein, fats, and carbohydrates rather than having just 100% carbohydrate breakfast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you put Reese's pieces in it? No. That <laughs> <laughs> okay. goes just, into the American porridge. Just That's asking. funny. <laughs> just but but you raise a good point because I do think a lot of Americans are used to having something sweet yes. for breakfast. And um, in making the transition to being open to having more savory things, like you described, I do think eggs are a bit of a pathway to try that. Mm -hmm. You can easily convert your taste buds from expecting something sweet to expecting something savory. You just have to, to be patient and be consistent. And like anything else, about three weeks of that, people find they become open to very savory dishes that maybe in the beginning sounded pretty repulsive to them. But um, I've often found clients coming in and saying, you know, I had dinner leftovers for breakfast today. It was delicious. You know, whether it was a bowl of chicken soup or some some leftover fish and vegetables for breakfast. Um, it just takes a little while to educate the taste buds in order to change it up. But I think it's worth experimenting with because I'm amazed at the number of people who feel better getting away from a sweet breakfast or a completely grain-based breakfast. Mm-hmm. So you don't know till you try. Yeah. Yeah. I want to stay on breakfast a little bit longer before we move to lunch, but there are a few other questions. So I want to get a picture of proportions, balance, and should breakfast be our biggest meal? That's a great question. Uh, I find, actually, you've shared this with me before, the old adage of uh, having breakfast like a king and lunch like a prince and dinner like a pauper. I think that's how you put it. Um, That I think for a lot of people, that can be good guidance, especially if people are interested in losing body fat. Um, or body weight. Uh, Because by having a larger uh, breakfast or more of our food earlier in the day, when our digestion is more efficient and when our metabolism is more active, we're more likely to actually burn for fuel and utilize what we've consumed rather than storing it as fat. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, it's important for for people to keep in mind that the body doesn't really have uh, endless ways to store excess uh, carbohydrates. So if we have these nice giant pasta meals for dinner um, where we're consuming a lot of carbohydrates and a, a lot of calories, whatever you don't burn for fuel in about two or three hours from when you ate, the body doesn't really have a choice but to convert excess into fat and store it in your body. Uh, so our eating habits should match when our energy needs are throughout the day. And again, most people are not going to go play doubles tennis for a couple of hours at 9 p.m. We're going to be <laughs> watching television or on the computer, right? So if you're more of that typical person, I find uh, making breakfast or lunch your largest meal of the day, um, it really works best for metabolism and energy. It might be breakfast, it might be lunch. I think people vary based on um, their appetite earlier during the day. But one or the other and, and honing into really having dinner become much smaller Outside of a special occasion, of course, that may have a big celebratory meal, but for your average weekday run-of-the-mill dinner, I'm amazed at how good people feel having a small, light meal. And then they go to bed, they sleep like a baby, they wake up, they're not groggy, and they're hungry and ready for a nice, hearty breakfast. Uh, I'm amazed at how simple of a change that is, but the impact that it has. Mm. So we talk about... uh proportions now and we talk about proteins and carbohydrates and fats what should the plate look like in terms of a size so that we can figure we're eating too much we're eating too little this is just right like the three bears <laughs> well looking at looking at meals in general <clears throat> I find, uh, and again, this is, we want to get back to, to just highlight that there's no magic way of eating that works for everyone. So some people are going to hear this and say, that doesn't really resonate with me. But I will say for most people, I find it works for on their plate, and it's, it's easy to see this visually, for um, a, a quarter to a third of their plate to be some type of protein. And for approximately half of their plate to be vegetables and uh, fruit, nuts, seeds, so these types of uh, plant-based carbohydrate foods, and then for about a quarter of their plate to be starches or grains. And so obviously that's going to change in makeup depending on the meal. Uh, if it's lunch, maybe the protein is a, a bit of chicken. Maybe the vegetables is a, a, a salad um, with also um, maybe um, a little stir fry vegetables. And then the starch might be some quinoa, might be a sweet potato, uh, might be some type of a pasta. Um, but but that type of makeup so that at least half of the plate is good, nutrient-dense, non-starchy, plant-based foods so that we, we get that huge, uh, intense um, dose of those phytonutrients that we've talked about in prior shows. Let's move to lunch. Okay. So- We've, uh, we've eaten breakfast, we've done some work, and lunch sometimes can be challenging because people sometimes, sometimes are at work and they only have a certain amount of time. Uh, how important is lunch in the day? I, I think lunch, in my opinion, is as important as breakfast. It, it is the, the peak um, energy output time of day for most people. 
And I also think that there's a there's a multifaceted benefit in taking a lunch break. I have found by far the hardest thing to encourage my clients to do around lunch. It's not so much what they're eating as to getting them to stop what they're doing and actually eat. <laughs> um, it's amazing to me how unwilling we are to take a break. Um, and as we've discussed on prior shows, when you eat running to a meeting or driving to another sales call or while having a stressful phone conversation or you're trying to balance your plate on your chest while you're typing emails, your digestion does not work the same as it does if you sit down at a table and just take 20 minutes to eat, to look at the food, smell the food, taste the food, feel the food, enjoy it, and allow your body to get a break from the stresses of your job or or whatever activities you've been doing. I think that's really crucial for balance. Very simple, but for many people, not easy to do. Yeah, I think it's most challenging in the sense that you're saying this is one of the most important meals of the day. It's possibly the one we should eat the most at if we don't eat the most for breakfast. And usually we set ourselves up in life to have the least amount of time and ability to prepare a meal. So how do we, how do we work this out? It's, uh, I, I think it, it's encouraging. It, you have to encourage people to start uh, where they are. Uh, and sometimes when people are skipping lunch entirely, just encouraging them to eat and a piece of fruit and a handful of nuts. It's better than not eating at all. Is it an ideal lunch? No, but it's easy. It's shelf stable. It doesn't require refrigeration. It's a place to begin. Um, but I, I find that um, making sure that lunch is factored in in the morning is pretty important. Whether it's packing a lunch or knowing where you're going in terms of ensuring that you'll have um, a good, reasonably healthy option available when you get there. Um, rather than being surprised, I, I think folks tend to, to deprioritize the availability of food. And, and I'll hear folks say, you know, I went to this place. They, it turns out there wasn't any food or they had things I couldn't have. So I just skipped it. And, and I think <laughs> occasionally that's OK. I mean, life happens. Right. But I think it's important that we're just mindful about it in the morning in terms of knowing where's our next meal going to come from. Um, it is very easy to make a little more of a dish at nighttime and just take it for leftovers the next day. I, I, this used to be a ubiquitous part of our culture and we just don't do it much anymore. And often people are left stuck trying to find something remotely healthy on a fast food menu. And that's pretty difficult to do. Um, but I want to talk about the taking a timeout. A lot of people work in office environments or they work with computers And these days, pretty much any computer has built-in software that would offer programmable alarms throughout the day. And and I find one of the most helpful things that people can do is to actually set an alarm for lunch, Um, a recurring alarm that goes off at 11.30 or 12.15 or 1 p.m. or whatever might be convenient for you, but an alarm that you have to stop what you're doing and go and turn off. As a reminder of your body saying, feed me, I I need, I need nourishment. I need a break. I need to get out of a sitting position. Um, It's a great time to enjoy a little meal, walk around for a little bit, get some oxygen to those brain cells, stretch your legs. 
this type of thing has been studied over and over, Glenn, as I'm sure you know. People are much more productive if they allow themselves to do this type of thing in the middle of the day. Their afternoon is much more productive work-wise. That's true. I want to make sure, though, Tracy, that you're not considering that that was your health tip and we're at the end of the show. <laughs> it, it seemed like such a good tip there that I started thinking, oh, did I, did I ask all the questions already? Or no, we... it's a good one, though. That's a, that's a good one. But I, I'm amazed at how often people will say, you know, that alarm goes off and kind of shocks me out of my work zone and enables people to just start a habit. You know, the old adage that it takes about 21, 25 days to set a new habit, I think by and large is true. And sometimes we need tools to help us to do that. Um, a coworker, maybe that we can collaborate with who will come over and stand in front of our monitor and say, that's it. It's lunchtime. Let's go. Um, I think that those are important tools to help us to get started on a new path. I think every word you say is an important tool. <laughs> <laughs> but let's, let's move forward. So, so what does... How does lunch look different than breakfast in terms of the proteins, the carbohydrates, the starches, the veggies, the fats? Well, that's a great question, Glenn, because I I really think um, our digestive ability is arguably at its best in the middle of the day. All systems are go, assuming we're not rushing off to a meeting so we're not in fight or flight. The body really is primed for digestion. And um, from a metabolic perspective, I think lunchtime is by far the best time of day to eat what I call your big piece of protein. So whether that is um, a sizable piece of fish or chicken or in the vegetarian world, uh, a piece of tempeh, you know, a big sizable serving of whole grains or a lot of legumes um, or a a piece of steak, whatever it might be, the body is best going to be able to digest that when your digestive juices, your hydrochloric acid, your digestive enzymes are all at their peak. And I I recommend people choose to do that at lunchtime rather than at dinner Uh, because our digestive faculties tend to be slower in the evening, especially if we're winding down activity-wise. Many people struggle with sleep just because when they go to bed, their digestive system is still trying to figure out what the heck to do with that six ounces of chicken. (laughs) Um, it sits there like a rock. And a lot of people know what I'm talking about when they're sitting on the couch trying to relax and they have indigestion. Uh, Sometimes time of day is a major player in that discomfort. So I recommend trying to change it up a little bit where if you are going to have a big piece of protein, have that at lunch and then have your, again, your dinner meal be lighter, primarily vegetables. Don't Um, don't, don't go to dinner yet. We don't want to go to dinner. (laughs) We want we um, want to stay at lunch for a minute. And um, and as we discussed earlier, making it a nice hearty meal, right, which obviously requires slowing down, giving yourself time to actually eat it, to chew thoroughly. There are a lot of cultures around the world who take a good hour and a half, two-hour break for lunch and enjoy a three-course meal. Um, a lot of Europe even has a siesta um, or something similar at midday where shops close down and everyone takes a collective break. I, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. It may be mm-hmm. old-fashioned, but I think it's wise. So we now know that the uh, we should spend a lot more time at lunch and the protein should be the biggest during the lunch. What about the others? Can they be, can we leave some things out? Do we always have to have protein, fats, vegetables, carbohydrates, starches? 
et cetera? Or can we leave some things out at any time? I, I I find that for most people, having a good balance of those things for breakfast and lunch is what helps them to feel the best. Um, in order to get away from the um, the afternoon munchies that most folks tend to have around four o'clock, um, or even worse, they're they're really hungry at four. They get home and they eat a whole bag of some kind of junk food while they're preparing dinner. I often find that's because uh, lunch didn't stick with them enough. And this mm-hmm. happens with a number of people who may not have enough protein at lunch. Maybe they had pizza or um, pasta or a big sandwich with chips um, where there's a lot of grains or a lot of starches uh, in that meal. And it, it just doesn't have the same metabolic staying power. So again, I think a, you know a nice half of your plate, maybe with a variety of vegetables, maybe some fruit as well, nuts um, with that that anchoring protein, and then some type of of starch in it. Um, I think starch can be optional at lunch, depending on what um, how much physical activity people are going to do in the afternoon. But I, I do find it's the time of day where that protein is best digested and um, leaves people with sustained energy to carry them through the afternoon. Okay, I think now, Christina, unless you have a lunch question. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, we can move to dinner first. That's okay. okay. Good. That's <laughs> Thank good. you. We'll be coming back. We'll be back. <laughs> because we have to go to sleep and then wake up again and start over. And, we're, and we haven't even spoken about snacks yet. <laughs> so we're skipping snacks for a few minutes and then maybe we'll come back to them. All right. So uh, dinner time. When should we eat? And uh, let's talk about all the things that we've talked about so far. Ah, dinner. I I find dinner is a a place where folks really uh, can get the greatest um, improvement in how they feel and how their food, how their eating habits makes them feel. I am stunned, Glenn, at the amount of insomnia that is caused by what people eat and when they eat it at night. Um, the The whole notion of giving your body a giant meal and getting all these digestive uh, functions kicked into high gear and then trying to ask your body to go to sleep an hour later doesn't really make sense um, for the body. I certainly have met people who feel like that is what is best for them. So it's not unheard of. I just don't think it's common. I don't think that's the typical human experience. I find most people feel best if they eat dinner such that there are three hours between when they finish dinner and when they go to bed. And what that allows is for digestion to take place. Um, and so <laughs> nice that you go to bed, <laughs> not hungry, but, but with an empty stomach. And, and that really does allow your body as necessary to, or as needed to access body fat, stored body fat as fuel throughout the night, which our bodies are really designed to do that, um, to use body fat as a passive source of fuel uh, when we're not eating. Uh, but um, it also uh, helps people to um, keep digestion from interfering with sleep. Mm. Restless sleep is is very often triggered by eating either too many carbohydrates, maybe too much sugar um, with dinner, or even worse, sometimes folks will, again, be trying to be good. I had a good dinner at 6 o'clock, and then at 9 o'clock I hit the wall and I ate a half a bag of Cheetos, two handfuls of Reese's Pieces. Dessert. Uh, sure. I mean, all sorts of things, right? Um, 
<clears throat> definitely not the ideal time to eat sweets of any kind if you have mm-hmm. body fat as a priority. Because again, unless you're going to exercise at night, unless you're going to have a very active evening, that is a lot of refined carbohydrate uh, calories that the body's not going to use that is pretty much going to go right to your belly um, as stored fat. So, uh, I th- again, I think it's important that um, for people who do have nighttime eating, that we do eat dinner so that you're, you have some satisfaction. But I often find people feel the best having a lighter dinner, maybe that's anchored primarily with vegetables. It's a great time to have a vegetarian meal that might be easier to digest. Not yeah. everyone digests vegetarian meals well. So if you're one of those people, this doesn't apply to you. So a, a big dose of legumes may not be easy to digest. But for a lot of people, maybe a, ve- a vegetable stir fry um, is going to feel the lightest and enable them to go into the evening without that sense of heaviness or indigestion or trouble falling asleep. Mm-hmm. Christina. Oh yes, I you know that 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 three hour rule. <laughs> <laughs> oh, during the summer months, yes, I, that was possible. Now it's back to school now. No, <laughs> and but it's, it's a light light dinner, though. I have to admit, sure. we do have a very light dinner, and that helps. That yes. helps. Obviously, the 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 three hours really helps to accommodate the typical sizable American dinner. Yes, if your meal is smaller, your body needs less time to process that, especially if it's vegetarian the body needs even less time to process it. Mm. So, um, and again, uh, what I encourage everyone to do is to experiment, try it, see how you feel, give it a shot for three days in a row and see how you feel. And if it's not better for you, that's great. You learn about your individuality. Um, But these are some tenets that most people are shocked at how much of a difference it makes for them. Mm, I have to so, admit it does. It, it really does make a difference. I know, as I said, you know, our whole, eat, my whole eating habit has shifted completely, you know, simply because I have a child. So I'm always, whatever he's eating, we're eating. <laughs> sure. So of course we want the best for him. So guess what? We have to change. <laughs> you know, that makes me ask, I have a question. Uh, do you think uh, for a future show, we should consider asking both of you this question? Uh, having a show on how to feed children starting from birth up until they leave the house, at least for the first time at college or something. I know Christina would have a lot of thoughts on that as well. That would be a fun (laughs) show. Okay. So we'll think about that. Uh, Back to, back to dinner again. So what, what can we leave out? What shouldn't we leave out? Summarize that for us again. And how big should the plate be? Um, so I, I find most people feel best um, having dinner be smaller. I, uh, for a lot of people, I recommend they serve their dinner on the salad plates that came with their with their china setting um, because dinner plates are huge. And sometimes we overeat just because the size of the dish beckons us to fill it up. Um, but I find just having a meal be more um, more plant based and certainly anchored with vegetables because they can be very filling. They're very bulky uh, initially, but we digest them quickly. Um, For people who have blood sugar issues, and certainly for active pre-diabetics and diabetics, generally they're going to find that they do need some type of protein with dinner in order to have blood sugar control 
um, throughout the, the rest of the evening. So they may find that they feel best having some sort of, say, chicken or fish, but maybe just a little piece, right? Maybe one or two ounces rather than a, a larger meal. Um, or they might be fine with, um, you know, a, two-thirds of a cup of some kind of beans um, or lentils or something like that as a vegetarian source of protein. But for folks with blood sugar control, the protein is a little more important um, in terms of keeping a consistent blood sugar and um, also making sure that there is, again, good healthy fat in the meal for um, spreading out the time over which those carbohydrates are absorbed. So again, depending on our challenges, our health challenges, we need to be a little more um, prescriptive. But I, but I think this lighter meal that's less protein anchored uh, serves most people quite well. Excellent. I really like that. Uh, but it, it seems to me that one of the challenges, at least from a medical point of view, is that you know, you go around, especially in big cities, and you see amazing restaurants full for the evening meal, and people are eating a lot. So this is going to have to be a whole cultural change in the sense that I know there's a social part to it, and uh, it's fun to go out and dine at night and have a lot of food, but that seems to be what we're saying is this is possibly part of the cause of the obesity and the diabetes that we're seeing in our country so much. So maybe if everyone watches MMT, then we'll change the entire culture <laughs> and we'll improve the health of our species and, and that'll be it. And our job will be done. But I, I do believe that it is starting to shift because uh, I see more people taking part of their meals home. I mean, I've been doing that for years now. I mean, I come from a family where you eat everything on your plate all the time. And just to say, no, 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 no. I would like to eat this. I'm going to take part of it home. And that's it. And I get to enjoy it for the next night or two nights, really. <laughs> that's how big the portions are out there, you know? I think that's an excellent point. Um, and and to your, to your point as well, Glenn, um, eating out is lovely, but it's only been in the past 20 years or so that portion sizes served at restaurants have gone off the deep end. Mm. Uh, and unfortunately, at the lower to mid-range type of priced restaurants, the plates are not being fortified with giant servings of fresh vegetables. They're being fortified with giant servings of potatoes and rice and pasta. Um, and, and making filling a really large plate that gives individuals the perception of value. Mm -hmm. But of course, it, it costs the restaurant 10 cents to give you a pound of French fries rather than a couple of ounces of French fries. So in many ways, we've been brainwashed um, because of this competition for feeling like you got the best value possible. Um, where we're not getting any more nutrition. And to your point, we're getting two mm -hmm. or even three or four meals worth of calories. I, I do find, Glenn, for people who enjoy fine dining, very often the portions are still quite small. They're not huge. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. People would, would go into an evening meal and, and have um, two or even three courses. They're going to be nicely spread out in time. It may not end up being a lot of food at all. Um, it may be delightfully flavorful and gourmet and, and lovely, but it won't be huge. I find it really depends on the rest type of restaurant that people are in. Um, and just being mindful, as Christina describes, that if it is huge portions, um, uh, take half of it home. Or even if you need to, ask for the to-go container as soon as they serve your meal. So you can go <laughs> ahead and cut it down the middle, put yeah. half in the to-go container, put it on the chair next to you and forget about it. 
and then enjoy your meal. Uh, I like that too. I've heard so many clients describe the challenge of they're they're the the ones who eat quickly in their family. And even though they only intend to eat half, while their spouse is eating much more slowly, they just keep picking at it. And they don't actually want it. They're not hungry, but it's there. And they just keep picking at it. And before they know, they've eaten the whole entire dish uh, mindlessly. Uh, when they could have had the convenience and the flavor and the money savings of uh, leftovers the next day. Mm. Mm. Excellent. You know, you talk about, uh, I remember in one of our episodes at, at the grocery store, you said, do most of your shopping and spend most of your money in the periphery of the store where, <laughs> yes. where all the good things are. Uh, what I do sometimes uh, when I go out for my fine dining, I usually uh, spend most of my time looking at appetizers. And instead of getting lots of things, sometimes I'll just get multiple little appetizers that'll take, you know, I'll order them in so that it will fit with courses of other people so that we're all eating at the same time. But just a few appetizers rather than having to always get an entree and an appetizer and a salad and a dessert. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's a great strategy. Uh, in fact, I, I often recommend that for weight loss or for people who have trouble with self-control. And very often, to your point, the appetizers are very interesting in terms of combinations of flavors and ingredients. And um, it, for a nice light meal, people can get a, a side salad and then have an on, uh, one of the appetizers as their entree. Uh, for most people, they find that ends up being just about right. And of course, you save a lot of money. And the nice thing is that appetizers don't come with this giant uh, serving of um, heavy calorie, nutrient poor starch. You tend to get more of the, you know, the protein and the, the fruit and the nuts and the vegetables and the nutrient dense whole food that we want minus the the cheap value added kind of uh, starches on the side. So I think it's a great strategy. Mm-hmm. Some mm-hmm. And some of the restaurants now are actually uh, offering an entree and an appetizer size. Mm-hmm. They, they offer each of those choices. Okay, so we've done breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Now we're asleep. And then we're about to wake up again and start over again. But this time during the day, uh, I'd like to talk a little about the timings of meals, how long between meals. And I'd also like to add the snack in the concept, the snack between breakfast and lunch or the snack between lunch and dinner. There was a time when people were uh, promoting to eat five or six meals a day, uh, but they were including the snacks in those. So Can we address those issues for a few minutes? Sure. Uh, I think in terms of the timing of meals, you hear a lot in the media because clinical study so far that I have seen that looks at the, the benefit of having just kind of three square meals a day versus having, I think to your point, maybe five mini meals, maybe three smaller meals and two hearty snacks. Uh, research is really varied in terms of showing a metabolic benefit one way or another. So it's very easy to find someone very passionate about one answer or the other, uh, promoting the findings of a, cert- of a certain single study. But in reality is if you look at the cornucopia of studies that have been done on that topic, they are not conclusive. In some cases, it shows it's beneficial to do one thing versus beneficial to do another thing. What I do find very consistently is shown in studies, it is not beneficial to eat a lot late at night. 
I think that's very clear cut. That's actually not up for debate. But depending on an individual's current health status and their activity level, they may find that they benefit better from three meals a day, like we talked about, maybe a, a, a hearty breakfast and a very hearty lunch and a light dinner. And those meals are spaced by five hours and they feel great. Other people, especially those with blood sugar concerns or those who do a lot of manual labor uh, or athletes, these types of things, definitely find that they feel their best if they have more of the five mini meals throughout the day that are spaced by approximately three hours. And it's definitely the, the mode of eating that I would use in my clients who have type 2 diabetes as we're trying to reverse that in order to help get them to a point of stable energy throughout the day. So I think snacks are fine as long as we're turning to them, number one, because we're actually hungry as opposed to bored, restless, stressed, etc. I find a lot of people snack emotionally um, where they're really looking for a shift in energy or mood rather than actually being hungry. Um, and also making sure, again, that um, it's not really thirst. I find lots of times people simply don't hydrate enough in between meals. And so... If you have breakfast at 7 in the morning, yeah, come around 10 o'clock. If all you've had is a cup of coffee and maybe a little glass of water when you woke up, you're thirsty. And so, I again, I recommend drinking a big glass of water first to make sure that it's not really thirst. But if, if folks are hungry and they're going to choose to have a snack mid-morning, maybe mid-afternoon, again, I think the important thing is that it's balanced. And, and I think having a balanced snack is actually even more challenging than having a balanced meal in the American culture because we tend to grab things out of vending machines that are 90 to 100% carbohydrates, um, primarily sugar and flour, um, maybe with some cheap oils thrown in. It's where we tend to make most of our, our nutrient um, mistakes and when we tend to, to go to processed, maybe even chemical-ridden foods. Uh, I, I think for a, a perfect snack would be, you know, a small handful of almonds and a pear. Very simple, shelf-stable. You can take a bag of pears and a bag of almonds to work on a Monday and put it in your desk drawer and, you know, grab from it throughout the week. It's very simple. Uh, no, no refrigeration required, but you can see it's something that gives a little balance, a little fat, a little protein, a little carbohydrate. Uh, another one that I really like is raw vegetables, maybe with some hummus. Uh, hummus is, has a, usually has a lot of olive oil in it. You get protein and fiber from the chickpeas that are in it. And then maybe some raw cucumbers or carrots, Peppers, uh, these are generally vegetables that don't require refrigeration, so it's easy to bring them from home. But something that's balanced as opposed to a granola bar. Despite a whole bunch of advertising otherwise, granola bars are generally about 90% carbohydrates, and most of them have as much uh, sugar ounce per ounce as a candy bar. So it's not generally a healthier mm -hmm. alternative. Um, or we eat, a, uh, we strive to eat a half a bag of microwave popcorn and we end up eating a whole bag of microwave popcorn, <laughs> which is a lot of usually very toxic fat, a lot of carbohydrates and a whole bunch of plastic chemicals from the bag absorbed into the popcorn. And a lot of GMO. 
Uh, exactly. Um, so <laughs> there, there are a lot of convenience foods that we tend to turn to that really set us back in terms of our intentions to have an otherwise healthy day. But I do think a couple of the things I described, most people like those and they're very easy to, um, to turn to. Or, or sometimes I will tell folks, if you, um, if you find that you have less time available at lunch and you are a bit rushed, don't try to eat your whole lunch. Eat just a few bites of it calmly, mindfully. And then when you do actually have a break later on in the afternoon, eat the rest of your lunch. It's so much better to do that than to only have 10 minutes for lunch and you're stressed out and you inhale this meal and you end up being still stressed and now you have indigestion and you're exhausted and you feel like taking a nap on your desk. That's not helping anything. Um, so uh, just some simple tips. Um, I'm not against snacking, but I find that sometimes people use snacking to consume extra calories that they don't necessarily want because they're not really hungry. They're either thirsty or, like I said, bored or restless or stressed or irritated, something emotional. Mm-hmm. So so a question came in. Uh, what if you're eating while watching TV? Would digestion be affected by the type of program you're viewing? For example, watching reruns of Cosby Show versus 24? (laughs) Yes, it will. Yes, it will. This is, there's, um, actually, you don't have to Google very much. There's fascinating research on this on two fronts. Mm. One is, of course, your nervous Mm. system is affected by what you're watching, to your point, whether it's. Um, something calm and relaxing uh, or something very stimulating, whether it's stimulating in a, in a positive or a stressful way. Um, but also, more importantly, when all of our attention is focused on a program, we tend not to notice what we're eating. We don't taste it. We don't smell it. We don't really even feel it. We're just sort of mindlessly putting in a bite at a time. And I understand some folks will say, but watching TV helps me to slow down, which is great. But it's also one of the reasons why an individual can eat a nice large meal while watching television. They finish the show an hour later and they're just looking for something sweet. And that's because their brain did not enjoy the meal at all because the brain was enjoying the television show. The brain did not savor the flavor and the juices and the textures of the food that they chose. Mm. The brain completely missed out on the fun. And the brain is probably going to insist on having some kind of fun. And to your point, Glenn, that's when the Reese's Pieces come out. (laughs) Um, But it's also been shown that in both children and adults, people eat up to 40% more food when they eat while in front of television. And I'm not making up that figure. It's huge. Um, It's fascinating to actually watch videos of people doing this where there's this mindless kind of hand to mouth where people are not paying attention to their body's feelings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't think they're aware of whether they're full or not. If you put it in front of them, they will just keep eating. So I I often find eating in front of TV uh, potentially promotes overeating where someone's natural um, body feedback may have told them halfway through, you know, I know there's more on the plate, but I'm done. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm full. Mm -hmm. We we enjoyed it. We tasted it. We smelled it. We the flavor was there. Um, We've had our fun. Let's move on to something else. Mm -hmm. 
And I think uh, often television can stand in the way of that. So it's answering more question, more of the question than was asked. But I do think TV can have an impact on a number of fronts. If you got to watch TV, then certainly it's better to watch comedy than uh, heavy drama or horror or tragedy. Um, but uh, I encourage folks to really begin to give themselves the gift of um, enjoying food and not requiring that food be one of those little things on the side that has to be multitasked. What do you think about watching the Iron Chef <laughs> while, while you're well, eating? Well, for me, that is sweet. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. But the, but the pressure of who's going to get cut, you know, I don't know. Uh, what, what about watching a food channel where people are enjoying <laughs> food and talking about how good it is? Would that change that for you? I, are you asking me? Uh-huh. I, I, I still find that it's distracting. You know, do you end up, do you end up tasting and thinking about what you're eating or where, what they're making? Right. Uh, I do find people love food shows as entertainment, which I think is great. Although to your point, Iron Chef can be pretty stressful. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think TV in general, I mean, again, moving away from 24 and into something lighter is great. But uh, I've just really firsthand seen it revolutionize people's lives to allow a meal to be an activity unto itself. Mm -hmm. Um, You can revolutionize your communication with your family, with your children, by simply sitting down at a table together and actually talking, not for three minutes while we inhale our meal, but actually for 20 minutes while we actually talk and share and laugh and and really bring back um, eating dinner together. You know, research shows that children are much less likely as juveniles and as adults to commit crimes and to be more successful in their jobs if they ate family dinner as a child. Mm -hmm. Isn't that amazing in Mm -hmm. terms of anchoring? I think there's so much goodness about that. And it's unfortunately become countercultural. It used to be quite standard. But I often find that after the first week or so of adjustment, the whole family loves it. Uh, especially if it can be kind of, you turn it into a game where you go around the table and each person says something fun about their day and everybody takes a bite and then you move on and, and someone else tells something fun and you eat a bite. It's kind of fun. It becomes Mm -hmm. a game and uh, there's competition for who has the funniest story and gets everybody out of their minds, out of their, their stressful activities. I think it's worth a shot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's totally interesting agree. that you said that because I was about to ask you the question about should we be silent during meals and just be within the meal. I watch people talking. Sometimes that's when they start choking. They're trying to say something and they're eating something, <laughs> they're spitting food all over people. And That's just because of the joke you just told. Uh, that, could, <laughs> that could be. That is a great question. Uh, There are certainly uh, traditional cultures that would honor eating in silence, um, really eating as meditation. Mm -hmm. Uh, As you may have as well, I have been to retreat centers or spiritual um, spa type locations where meals were taken in silence. Mm -hmm. And it, it can actually be a really lovely experience to have nothing distracting you from just how delicious your meal is. Um, we're a lot more likely when we do that to slow down and chew our food thoroughly because we want to be entertained by it. Right. And if a, if a food is delicious, do you want to get two or three chews worth of pleasure from it? Or do you want to get 45 or 50 chews 
Um, stretching out meals tends to help people to eat less and to digest better. Uh, so I, I think there's value in that. Uh, to your point, it's very countercultural. And I certainly have worked with people who live alone, who are self-conscious maybe about their aloneness and have a hard time slowing down. And um, they feel better having a conversation with a friend. It, it slows them down. They feel more comfortable. Um, and I respect that immensely. Or, or even for people who tend to inhale their food if they're eating alone, Maybe reading um, something, you know, nothing uh, stressful, but just, uh, you know, reading a little book or something um, along with their meal. But what I encourage people to do is put the book down, take a bite, chew it, enjoy it, swallow it, then pick the book back up, keep reading for a little bit, put it down, have another bite. These kinds of transition tools can be really helpful for people who are otherwise inhaling their meal in 33 or four minutes while sitting in front of the television. We have to begin where we are. So um, I think for some people, getting to a silent meal like that may seem like a, a big stretch. But I have definitely found clients who started to treat their meals as a meditation, as a little meditation break where they got out of their mind and they didn't speak and they were quiet and got away from the hubbub. And it served them well on many levels. I think it's a, a really provocative idea. Well, we're, I think we're finally coming close to the end. You've had so many health tips. I thought we'd been at the end <laughs> so many times. But uh, Christina, do you have any questions or final thoughts before we get a, another health tip from Tracy? Oh, you know, no, they, my, all, all the questions are starting to continue to bubble in my head. So you might get a whole list of questions very soon. <laughs> Fair enough. I love the questions and for the viewers as well, as, as you well said, um, questions are welcome at any time. I, I really value the exploration and the discussion. So time for your health tip, Tracy. My health tip uh, is actually something, interestingly enough, that's come up with a number of my clients, um, certainly over the years, but in particular, for whatever reason, in the past few weeks, I've caught myself talking about this repeatedly. And that is the role of caffeine in impairing sleep. And I, I want to share something that I think a number of folks may find surprising. The half-life of caffeine in the body depending on the person, is between 9 and 12 hours. And so, as we discussed before on prior shows, sleep is so vital for wellness. And I think when, when people struggle to sleep, it's one of the very first things I help them with because when sleep gets better, everything else tends to get better. But, but people are often shocked to learn that the cup of coffee that they had at 11 a.m., is still fully capable of disrupting their sleep when they try to go to bed at 10 p.m. And that's because, again, if the half-life is, let's say, 10 hours, that means your, your body has worked through half of that caffeine 10 hours later, but it's still metabolizing it. And depending on how sensitive you are to caffeine, it's actually fully capable of keeping you awake later on in the evening. So for, for again, people who struggle to either go to sleep or stay asleep, or maybe they sleep intermittently, uh, restlessly, where they don't sleep deeply and are, are easily awakened. I really encourage no caffeine after about 9.30 or 10 in the morning. And it's interesting the number of people who have thought that wouldn't make a whit of difference, but who have tried it, and, and after a few days in a row found that they did sleep better 
Mm-hmm. And and so it's not so much about do you have coffee with dinner or even do you have coffee in the afternoon at three o'clock. For some people, that cup of coffee you have at 11 or 12 is actually making a difference in your sleep. And for occasionally a person, the caffeine that they're having at 8 a.m. is actually affecting their sleep. Wow. So I like to support better sleep. So for those of you listening who wrestle with that, give it a try. At a minimum, try to get rid of any caffeine. So tea, coffee, mate, chocolate, anything that has caffeine in it. Try to get rid of that after about 10 a.m. and see if that doesn't improve your sleep. You might be surprised. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great tip, but I, I felt the uh, the universal force of all coffee drinkers shaking <laughs> and shuddering. <laughs> that there was just this... <clears throat> To your point, it's an interesting trade-off because I think as long as it's in moderation, there's nothing toxic about coffee. But depending on a person's individual physiology, I hear you, mm-hmm. the caffeine can be a problem. And and sometimes people find going to half decaf, half regular, maybe that helps, or even just taking the portion size much smaller or moving from you know a cup of coffee to just a shot of espresso. Most people are shocked to find out that espresso, ounce per ounce, has um, less caffeine than coffee. Mm. Uh, even though it tastes stronger, uh, it's actually not caffeine-wise. Um, so, um, but That's I hear you. I, uh, I enjoy uh, I enjoy <laughs> coffee as well, but there is a trade-off sometimes. Yes, I just drink mine from seven in the morning to four o'clock in the afternoon, and it's the same darn cup. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, oh, it, it's, it's hilarious. I've never done this in my life, and I just realized I was doing it for the last two months. It's like, is, my, is that still the same coffee I've been drinking? It is. <laughs> and it's, it's again, it's a great topic to um, showcase that we're all different. I'm sure we all know someone who can have dinner at 6 and have a nice, strong cup of black coffee at 7.30 p.m., go to bed at 10, and sleep like a baby. Yes. And there's nothing wrong Mm -hmm. with that. If your body metabolizes caffeine rapidly, then this is not an issue for you. But I think it's another example where we're all different, and it pays to know who you are Mm -hmm. versus who the, the rest of your family members are because we respond to to the same thing in different ways. I think you're right. And I think the way you said it, uh, you have to start where you are and start thinking about these things. And if, if people can start uh, making some small changes at the beginning and then evaluating, like you said, again, evaluate, did that make you feel a little better? Well, if that made you feel better, then think about, you know, doing a little more and a little more and a little more until you come into that uh, very good balanced way of eating, which then uh, changes your digestion, which helps your uh, energy, which helps your sleep, which decreases your stresses. We talk about all of that. So that was great. And again, we're so grateful to our special guest, Tracy Harrison, for sharing her wisdom and expertise uh, and education with us. I'd also like to thank all of my teachers and healers. Uh, that have brought me on my journey and allowed me to do what I'm doing. And until next week, as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy, searching for uh, different ways to heal, I thank you again, Tracy, for all that you do. And I wish everyone optimal health. Yes, of course. Thank you, Tracy. <laughs> thank you both. It for was exciting great fun. us. <laughs>
<laughs> Tracy really knows how to stir those juices in our minds and our bodies. <laughs> and of course, thank you, Dr. Glenn Woolman, for hosting this great hour together again. Um, and of course, we would like to thank each and every one of you uh, for joining us in this new platform of education and information. And of course, Segovia Smith and the wonderful Yoga Hub team for making this possible. You know, we are always grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. We invite you to join us live on Tuesdays for Magical Medical Tour at 10.30 a.m. Pacific, 1.30 p.m. Eastern, Wednesdays for Trinity of Life at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, followed every other week with Flowing into Awareness with Anatara. May I remind you that you can connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman, our medical guide, by following him on Twitter at Glenn Woolman, and of course through his own site, glennwoolman.com, where you can learn about his metaphor, Square Breath. And I would like to also remind you that you can connect with Tracy Harrison directly through wildlysuccessfulhc.com. Again, we're always grateful for any feedback or suggestions. Give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Until next time, namaste. YHTV's Trinity of Life. Come join me, Christina Suzama, as I journey to find the many modalities that support individuals, from children to adults to elders, with topics ranging from health and wellness, meditation, and inspirational stories. I invite you to visit yogahub.tv every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern.